Section 26 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. George Meredith, The Egoist. George Meredith as his friends used to tell one with amusement, was a vain man. Someone has related how, in his later years, he regarded it as a matter of extreme importance that his visitors should sit in a position from which they would see his face in profile. This is symbolic of his attitude to the world. All his life he kept one side of his face hidden. Mr. Ellis, who is the son of one of Meredith's cousins, now takes us for a walk round Meredith's chair. No longer are we permitted to remain in restful veneration of a god and a Greek. Mr. Ellis invites us, and we cannot refuse the invitation, to look at the other side of the face, to consider the full face and the back of the head. He encourages us to feel Meredith's bumps, and no man whose bumps we are allowed to feel can continue for five minutes the pretense of being an Olympian. He becomes a human being under a criticizing thumb. We discover that he had a genius for imposture, an egoist's temper, and a stomach that fluttered greedily at the thought of dainty dishes. We find all those characteristics that prevented him from remaining on good terms first with his father, next with his wife, and then with his son. At first, when one reads the full story of Meredith's estrangements through three generations, one has the feeling that one is in the presence of an idol in ruins. Certainly, one can never mistake Box Hill for Olympus again. On the other hand, let us but have time to accustom ourselves to see Meredith in other aspects than that which he himself chose to present to his contemporaries. Let us begin to see in him not so much one of the world's great comic censors as one of the world's great comic subjects, and we shall soon find ourselves back among his books, reading them no longer with tedious awe, but with a new passion of interest in the figure in the background of the complex human being who wrote them. For Meredith was his own great subject. Had he been an Olympian, he could not have written the egoist or harry richmond he was an egoist and pretender coming of a line of egoists and pretenders and his novels are simply the confession and apology of such a person meredith concealed the truth about himself in his daily conversation he revealed it in his novels he made such a mystery about his birth that many people thought he was a cousin of queen victoria's or at least a son of bulwer lytton's it was only in Evan Harrington that he told the essentials of the truth about the tailor's shop in Portsmouth above which he was born. Outside his art, nothing would persuade him to own up to the tailor's shop. Once, when Mr. Claude was filling in a census paper for him, Meredith told him to put near Petersfield as his place of birth. The fact that he was born at Portsmouth was not publicly known, indeed, until some time after his death. And not only was there the tailor's shop to live down, 
but on his mother's side he was the grandson of a publican, Michael McNamara. Meredith liked to boast that his mother was pure Irish, an exaggeration, according to Mr. Ellis, but he said nothing about Michael McNamara of the Vine. At the same time, it was the presence not of a bar sinister, but of a yardstick sinister in his coat of arms that chiefly filled him with shame. When he was marrying his first wife, he wrote Esquire in the register as a description of his father's profession. There is no evidence, apparently, as to whether Meredith himself ever served in the tailor's shop after his father moved from Portsmouth to St. James's Street, London. Nothing is known of his life during the two years after his return from the Moravian school at Neuwied. As for his hapless father, who had been trained as a medical student, but went into the family business in order to save it from ruin, he did not succeed in London any better than in Portsmouth and in 1849 he emigrated to South Africa and opened a shop in Cape Town. It was while in Cape Town that he read Meredith's ironical comedy on the family tailordom, Evan Harrington, or He Would Be a Gentleman. Naturally, he regarded the book, in which his father and himself were two of the chief figures, with horror. It was as though George had washed the family tape measure in public. Augustus Meredith, no less than George, blushed for the tape measure daily. Probably, Melchizedek Meredith, who begat Augustus, who begat George, had also blushed for it in his day. As the great Mel in Evan Harrington, he is an immortal figure of genteel imposture. His lordly practice of never sending in a bill was hardly that of a man who accepted the conditions of his trade. In Evan Harrington, Three generations of a family's shame were held up to ridicule. No wonder that Augustus Meredith, when he was congratulated by a customer on his son's fame, turned away silently with a look of pain. The comedy of the Meredith family springs, of course, not from the fact that they were tailors, but that they pretended not to be tailors. Whether Meredith himself was more ashamed of their tailoring or their pretentiousness, it is not easy to decide. Both Evan Harrington and Harry Richmond are, in a measure, comedies of imposture, in which the vice of imposture is lashed as fiercely as Moliere lashes the vice of hypocrisy in Tartuffe. But it may well be that in life Meredith was a snob, while in art he was a critic of snobs. Mr. Yeats, in his last book of prose, put forward the suggestion that the artist reveals in his art not his self, which is expressed in his life, but his anti-self, a complementary and even contrary self. He might find in the life and works of Meredith some support for his not-quite-convincing theory. Meredith was an egoist in his life, an anti-egoist in his books. He was pretentious in his life, anti-pretentious in his books. He took up the attitude of the wronged man in his life, he took up the case of the wronged woman in his books. In short, his life was vehemently pro-George Meredith, while his books were vehemently anti-George Meredith. He knew himself more thoroughly, so far as we can discover from his books, than any other English novelist has ever done. He knew himself comically, no doubt, rather than tragically. 
In Modern Love and Richard Feverell, he reveals himself as by no means a laughing philosopher. But he strove to make fiction a vehicle of philosophic laughter rather than of passionate sympathy. Were it not that a great poetic imagination is always at work, in his prose, perhaps, even more than in his verse, his genius might seem a little cold and head in the air. But his poet's joy in his characters saves his books from inhumanity. As Diana Warwick steps out in the dawn, she is not a mere female human being undergoing critical dissection. She is bird song and the light of morning and the coming of the flowers. Meredith had as great a capacity for rapture as for criticism and portraiture. He has expressed in literature, as no other novelist has done, the rapturous vision of a boy in love. He knew that a boy in love is not mainly a calf, but a poet. Love in a Valley is the incomparable music of a boy's ecstasy. Much of Richard Feverell is its incomparable prose. Rapture and criticism, however, make a more practical combination in literature than in life. In literature, criticism may add flavor to rapture. In life, it is more than likely to destroy the flavor. One is not surprised, then, to learn the full story of Meredith's first unhappy marriage. A boy of twenty-one, he married a widow of thirty, high-strung, hot and satirical like himself, and after a depressing sequence of dead babies, followed by the birth of a son who survived, she found life with a man of genius intolerable and ran away with a painter. Meredith apparently refused her request to go and see her when she was dying. His imaginative sympathy enabled him to see the woman's point of view in poetry and fiction. It does not seem to have extended to his life. Thus, his biography is to a great extent a showing up of George Meredith. He proved as incapable of keeping the affection of his son Arthur as of keeping that of his wife. Much as he loved the boy, he had not been married again long before he allowed him to become an alien presence. The boy felt he had a grievance. He said, probably without justice, that his father kept him short of money. Possibly he was jealous for his dead mother's sake. Further, though put into business, he had literary ambitions, a prolific source of bitterness. When Arthur died, Meredith did not even attend his funeral. Mr. Ellis had shown Meredith up not only as a husband and a father, but as a hireling journalist and a lark-devouring gourmet. On the whole, the poet who could eat larks in a pie seems to me to be a more shocking great man than the radical who could write Tory articles in a newspaper for pay. At the same time, it is only fair to say that Meredith remains a sufficiently splendid figure in Mr. Ellis's book even when we know the worst about him. Was his a generous genius? It was at least a prodigal one. As poet, novelist, correspondent, and conversationalist, he leaves an impression of beauty, wit, and power in a combination without a precedent. End of section 26